I think when young people start businesses now and you look at startups now, the strongest asset they've got is an unshakable belief that what they're doing is right. Now, they may end up changing what they're doing. They may end up, the, the popular word everyone overuses now, pivot a bit. But the bottom line is they started with an idea. So many people, Dan, have an idea, but they don't act on it. We used to act on it. Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to DSR Branding Presents. Join me as I interview brilliant business leaders on branding, marketing, design, and good business principles. These are people who think differently and have commercialized their creativity to do something remarkable. This episode is on building a global entertainment company and B2B sales with Tony Begin. At 22, Tony founded MCM Entertainment Group, which he grew to a $50 million global business. His sales and marketing experience include working with enterprises like the Coca-Cola Company, Microsoft, Samsung, and Disney, amongst many others. Nowadays, Tony has two focuses. As the principal of the McGinn Partnership, a sales coaching business for CEOs and leaders of B2B SMEs, and as a tech chair and CEO mentor at The Executive Connection. Tony shares some great stories about MCM's growth, starting Take 40 Australia with radio legend Barry Bissell, working with former Prime Minister Bob Hawke and brand partnerships with pop megastar Prince. Tony then dives into providing some brilliant takeaways on B2B sales and the common mistakes people often make in the sales process. I had a fantastic time chatting with Tony. I left our conversation feeling both inspired and energized with practical sales advice to implement into my business. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Well, Tony, thanks very much for coming on the show, mate. No problems. Happy to be here. Mate, we always kick things off the same way with a simple icebreaker. So what's your favorite brand and why? Wow. I have to say it's possibly the most famous brand in the world, Coca-Cola. <laughs> and good. it's not because I drink it anymore, really, because there's way too much sugar in it, but um, it's my favourite brand because for about 12 or 15 years after I started my own business, people would refer to that business as the company Coca-Cola built. <laughs> um, they were our largest client from day one till about 12 or 13 years. Um, globally, we worked with them. Uh, it's a phenomenal journey. And, and, I, and I suppose they're my favourite brand for two reasons because, well, probably three reasons. Uh, aside from the obvious reason that, you know, they were a very big and growing customer and helped build the business that I had such a wonderful journey with, Putting that one aside, the three reasons would be number one, because I learned working with the Coca-Cola company that the most phenomenal thing about it is the respect for the brand that resided in the company. So I, I ended up working with Coca-Cola across multiple countries um, from the boardroom in Atlanta to 25 countries in Europe, Japan, parts of Asia and, of course, Australia, which is where it started. And uh, I made many friends uh, in, in Coca-Cola management and marketing around the world and um, 
you know, I, I worked with them for so long and saw so many different presidents and chief marketing officers and uh, um, marketing leads and some of them were good, some of them were okay, some of them weren't that good. Um, but at the end of the day, even if the company and, the you know, the way the company was operating was frustrating people in it, they all got up every morning and held enormous respect for the brand itself. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the most important um, thing of every, in everyone's mind in the Coca-Cola company was brand Coca-Cola. And no one would, but down, down to the, the extent that they would never split the logo over two lines when typing a letter. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, and if, if the brand was ever to be used in, in and I'm going back to overhead acetates, mate, um, before um, the use of, um, you know, PowerPoint and Keynote, et cetera, um, but they would literally have departments inside the organisation that would, art departments that would develop the most beautiful acetate overhead slides and, you know, the way the company presented to itself was just fantastic. So uh, that was the number one reason, the respect of the brand. Uh, the second reason is because I never did marketing, a tertiary education in marketing, but I did a marketing course um, in life and my teacher was the Coca-Cola company. I learned an enormous amount about marketing um, working with the Coca-Cola company and their agencies. Uh, a fascinating um, journey and, you know, no better grounding um, for me. Um, so I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for that. And the third reason is that I learned in business working with the Coca-Cola company um, and brand Coca-Cola around the world is that any company at the end of the day is only really, really exceptional at one thing. They can be good at lots of things, but they're only really exceptional at one thing. And it's that one thing that is the growth engine that scales them mm. um, and protects them from their competitors. And ironically, you know, you would think, looking at brand Coca-Cola, the one thing they must have been brilliant at or exceptional at was marketing. Well, as I was saying, sometimes they didn't have good marketing people and sometimes they lowballed it um, and didn't get it right um, in different parts around the world. But the one thing they have always been exceptional at, anywhere they've gone, is distribution. Yeah, 100%. I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Because I was going to ask, like, you know, Coke, Coke's famous for vending machines and, and fridges in the corner stores. Like, it's Coke's everywhere. They basically created a vision that in a, anywhere humans congregated, you were never more than 20 paces from a cold Coke. And if you go to a market like Japan, even more so than America, that is just so evident. Mm. There's a quote on branding that I loved and I was, I was trying to track down who said it and, and I realized that it was, um, it was the Coke chairman. I think it's Mutar Kent. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But the quote is, a brand is a promise. A good brand is a promise kept. Um, and it was cool that it's, it's interesting you said Coke because that's actually one of my favorite quotes on branding 
The fascinating thing as to why, and this would be a good story for your listeners, not a lot of people know this, but the fascinating reason why Coke is such an exceptional distribution company is because during the Second World War, the president of America and the president of Coke were good friends, not the first time that you know, presidents of enterprises were good friends with the president of the, of, of the country. And they were sitting down having a, uh, a coffee discussing the, the challenges of the Second World War with, with the American GIs on the front spread right across Europe and also in the Pacific. And the president of America at the time said to the president of Coke, My biggest challenge is to let our boys know that whilst they're out there in the front line, we've all seen the movies and, you know, how isolated and how terrible those um, conditions were and and the the mortality rate of um, losing men and wounding men and, you know, it, it was just not a good place at all. He said, I want them to know America is behind them. I want them to realise that America's got their back no matter how far from home they are and I need to find out a way to do that. And the president of Coke turned around and said, well, you need to put a bottle of Coke in their hands (laughs) because that is America. And the reason why Coke decimates Pepsi outside of America as opposed to in America where it's far more a 50-50 equation, but it's 70-30 or even more in Coke's favour pretty much everywhere else in the world, is because the US government financed the Coca-Cola company rolling out bottling plants right through Europe and the Asia-Pacific to ensure that they could put a Coke in the hand of every American GI. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. That's that's actually the reason why they became, you know, one of the first ever global FMCGs. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I'm interested to see what what Coke, um, what the stats on their like their, how, you know, how much people are actually drinking Coke these days as to, as opposed to other Coke products. But I mean, they seem pretty um, pretty hardy to market conditions and and like evolving taste buds and things like that. Like it's a pretty massive company that they've got different products and different drinks for different uh, different markets or different taste buds, I guess. Yeah, well, again, once you've got that distribution machine set up, you can put water through it, you can put, you know, Fanta through it, you can put still through it, you can put all sorts of stuff through mm. it. It's, um, you know, and you can change the, the tastes and requirements, the serving sizes, the with or without um, sugar, the, the the non-sugar versions, whatever the trend is in the market, um, you know, you can address that trend um, because you've got the distribution to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Well, Tony, how did you, um, you mentioned before you didn't actually have a traditional background in marketing, but you gained that through your work with Coca-Cola. Um, but how did you, going back, how did you get your start in the industry? Well, I was originally going to be a landscape architect, um, but I uh, I decided um, that that's what I was focused on. I was doing that at university at RMIT in Melbourne, and, but I got involved in the student radio station. I fell in love with music and 
radio and the media of radio. And this is way back in the late 70s, very late 70s, uh, sort of 1979-ish. And um, I uh, I decided that uh, I wanted to get into radio. Um, so I, I ended up running the student radio station at, at uh, 3ST at RMIT. And then... Um, I got a part-time job in uh, in radio at 3DB Rhythm of the City doing music research, uh, which is fascinating, playing songs down the phone to people and rating their likes and dislikes, which would then drive the playlist of the radio station. I then got a job at 3OW in panel operating for talkback radio and production and then um, I eventually got a job in uh, as a trainee salesperson at uh, Fox FM at the birth of FM radio in Australia, the second FM radio station in the country. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, that's that's where I fell in love with, with the medium or media full stop, the medium of radio, absolutely music. Um, and then I, I found out through asking lots of curious questions that, uh, in America, there was a big business in syndication where um, big national radio shows were syndicated across lots of independent radio stations around the country. And, of course, this going back then, this is before the, the era of networks, we didn't have radio networks. Um, at best, there might have been one or two stations that were affiliated, maybe three, but nothing like there is today where there's literally networks of 40, 50 radio stations. Um, uh, so it, it was a very segmented industry uh, back then. So I liked that idea, but, it, but the, the formula for, for, for that I that I researched in in the states was what was called barter syndication, where you would simply make the radio program available free to the radio station. Um, obviously, it had to be a program they wanted, something that was you know entertaining to them, and they knew their listeners would love. And in return, you would hang on to an element of the commercial advertising in the program. And whilst they're selling most of their ads to the local pub or vacuum cleaner shop um, or, you know, gardening nursery, um, we would be selling the ads we had in the program to national advertisers. Um, And we started off the first show that we launched, um, which was... uh, you know, just fascinating right time, right place. I asked the question, why doesn't Australia have its own national top 40? Um, we, we had back then what was known as Casey Kasem's American top 40, which was being shipped out of the States and they'd play it two weeks later here. Um, and it was actually shipped out as vinyl records and played as vinyl records <laughs> as a radio program. And uh, we said, well... Let's create our own here in Australia. And um, we, awesome. I got together with uh, Barry Bissell, who was working at Fox FM at the time, and he thought it was a great idea. And we joined forces. Uh, we brought on a, a writer, the late Ed Nimavol, and we created demonstrations of the program. And we sent those demonstrations out to radio stations, and they said, we like the idea. So we then thought, well, we need to get a sponsor for this. The logical sponsor would have been, you know, someone like Coca-Cola. So I have never never having, um, you know, dealt with national advertisers and radio before, my trainee sales job at Fox was working in direct sales, um, I 
I opened up the phone book back then. We didn't have Google and <laughs> uh, looked for Coca-Cola and um, drove out to Moorabbin to meet the promotions and marketing manager of Coca-Cola Bottlers Melbourne. And it turned out to be the best mistake I ever made because <laughs> I pitched him the idea and he said, this is brilliant. I love this idea. He said, the only problem is I'm one of 13 Coca-Cola bottlers and the way our marketing is managed, it's managed out of French's Forest in Sydney, yeah. which is head office, um, and the American head office um, pays 50 cents in every dollar of advertising and the 13 bottlers contribute the other 50 cents in every dollar. The good news for you is I'm the second largest bottler in the country and behind Sydney, and you're going up to Sydney to meet with head office with my vote in your pocket. That's great. <laughs> and by screwing up and not visiting head office but visiting one of the bottlers, I actually got leveraged in, and I remember walking into the head office of Coke at French's Forest in Sydney, and as the marketing director walked across reception to meet me and shake my hand, he said, I've heard a lot about you. And I was just a young 22-year-old with a big idea. And, I mean, sometimes naivety can be your best friend, yeah? <laughs> That's amazing. So you, you were behind the Australian Top 40. Take 40 Australia was the first program that we That's released. Cool. And we <laughs> That's used to awesome. sit in the kitchen. We used to sit in the kitchen of the house. We rented at East Doncaster. And we would ring up radio stations and talk to them about the idea and send them out cassette tape demos. And in one bedroom we had a, a, a wooden rack with a whole lot of Revox B77 reel-to-reel tape machines running off dubs of uh, the program which we produced in the studios of Fox FM. And then we'd duplicate it and it would take about a full day and a whole night, so around about... Um, 36 hours all up to actually duplicate all the tapes, put them into air freight satchels and um, then we'd have Anset Air Freight come around and pick them up and take them out and try and get them to all the radio stations in time for Friday and because wow. uh, they would broadcast it on the weekend. I'm sure the neighbours <laughs> in East Doncaster thought we were um, drug couriers or something, <laughs> you know, yeah. all these packets coming in and out of the house all the time. I was going to ask in one of my questions how the media landscape has changed over the time, but I think distribution of content is probably a huge one, uh, not having to yeah, physically you know, ship things and ship programs around the country and, and being able to rely on uh, you know, things like Dropbox and stuff like that would probably be a massive, uh, yeah, a massive shift. But, um, oh, yeah. huge, huge. We, we launched a show later on in the 80s called Rocksat, which is where we get huge celebrities anyone from Elton John to Phil Collins to Keith Richards, you know, um, didn't matter. Anyone you can imagine, David Lee Roth from Van Halen, um, we we would get some of the biggest stars in the world. We'd get them in studios in New York or Germany or UK or wherever if they were touring, and we would have to get that uplink via local satellite to... Um, a satellite downlink to us, all right, and then it had to be distributed around to our stations live via telecom uh, or Telstra um, 
but I think they were called Telecom back then, um, Telecom um, uh, broadcast lines. And uh, the amount of effort we had to go to to make that technically work, where now you could do it just as you and I are talking, you're in, you're in Brisbane, I'm in Melbourne, and, you know, we're talking over computers with, you know, near broadcast quality, if not broadcast quality. So, um, and if you look at television now with COVID, all the stuff that's happening on Zoom, um, it, it's amazing how the world has changed as far as media distribution is concerned. Yeah, definitely. Tony, like going back to, to 22, rocking up at Coca-Cola's head office in Sydney uh, in French as far as I will add, that was where I grew up. So that's pretty funny. That's, um, yeah, just up the road. We, we lived in French as far as, uh, yeah, most of my childhood. Um, how did you, how did you have that confidence to do that? Uh, or where did that come from? Was it, um, was it sheer sort of naivety or, or was it, was it, was there some, some confidence in, in the, program you had yeah where did that come from um well i suppose the motto i ended up building through my business career running mcm was nothing's impossible it's just not been done yet uh and 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 i suppose i learned that from that very very early stage right idea right time right place and also, we just had a tremendous will to act on our ideas. Um, a tr- I think when young people start businesses now and you look at startups now, the strongest asset they've got is an unshakable belief that what they're doing is right. Now, they may end up changing what they're doing. They may end up, the, the popular word everyone overuses now, pivot a bit. <laughs> but the bottom line is they started with an idea. So many people, Dan, have an idea, but they don't act on it. We used to act on it. Yeah. And we got really good at it. We also started a business in the 80s, which was a pretty crazy decade. I would have the 80s back again. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we would wake up you know, later on as the company matured, sort of five, six, seven years into our journey, we would wake up, go to work uh, with an idea We'd have a brainstorm. Um, we'd celebrate how great that idea is with lunch and a few beers. Then we'd write the proposal in the afternoon and we would target it to a specific customer that, you know, we know the idea would suit and we'd contact them directly or via their agency and by 5 o'clock we'd have a verbal sale on a half-million-dollar project, um, you know, literally that was invented that morning. Wow. Um, it, it was quite fascinating how, you know, we just learned to innovate and back ourselves in and and we were quite daring around it. One of the questions I was asked recently in uh, an interview was, you've dealt with a lot of enterprises over your years, you know, Samsung, Philips, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, um, Disney, Turner, Um the list goes on, lots and lots and lots. Um, and they said, what's it like dealing with enterprises as opposed to, you know, SMEs and, and, and smaller businesses? And I said, well, in enterprises, it's not their money. Yeah. But it's their career. And because it's not their money, enterprises can afford to take much bigger risks than smaller businesses. 
and to compete and grow, they almost need to take some risks. And so generally speaking, particularly at the time, the era we were in, the 80s and 90s and noughties, they were looking for big ideas, bold ideas. So the bolder we were, even though it scared them, they were prepared to take risks because they realised with, you know, their money and their might, um, usually big companies and enterprises have a lot of leverage. Um, Coca-Cola is a good case in point. In the early days of Take 40 Australia, they would contact a radio station and say, we notice you're not running Take 40 Australia. Why is that? The next thing the radio station would ring us and say, we'd like to consider Take 40 Australia. <laughs> you know, when, you, when your media budget back then, they were big numbers, is, you know, $40 million, you got a lot of leverage. Yeah. So um, they like big ideas, they like to be bold, um, they can afford to make mistakes and it's about their career growth and the growth of the business more so than it's their money because it's not their money. Mm. The, the company's going to spend it one way or another. Do you think having, having Coke um, as one of the brands uh, or one of the enterprises that you were working with sort of facilitated um, the growth or the adoption of other enterprises? It was almost like they, yeah. you know, that helped pave the way. Yeah, Coke did some amazing creative back then too and it was the era when they um, sort of after the first five years with Coke, it was, maybe it was a little longer, maybe it was the first six or seven years, they moved from a traditional agency model whilst they still used McCann they embraced um, uh, creative artist agencies out of Hollywood yeah. and they started working with some of the biggest film directors and musicians and actors uh, and the like through creative artist agency and that became a lot of the creative resource for their advertising. So they were very aspired to at the time. Um, you know, many companies wanted to market like Coke, entertain like Coke and get into the events and activities that Coke was getting into. Um, and, you know, I, I, I remember a conversation. I came back from London where we were building an operation out early days and I, I did a trip back from London It would have been, uh, 87, 88, something like that, and um, the business was sort of five, six years old. No, it would have been, no, 88, 89. And um, the then marketing uh, director of Coke in Australia um, called me in and up to Sydney. He said, we need to see you. I thought, oh, God, we must be in trouble or something. So I flew up. And, uh, and then he pulled the president of Coke in and the president then was a, actually an, a, a southern Atlanta, southern American from Atlanta, uh, Georgia, you know, with the, the full accent and yep. bravado to go with it. And he was running um, uh, Australasia at the time uh, or Oceania. And um, they sat down at the boardroom table and I said, I must be in really big trouble now if the president's in. <laughs> And they turned around and said, we want to do something really, really big. Um, 
and we can't think of anyone else to do it other than you guys. And I said, well, what's really, really big? And they said, well, over the decades, Coke has pretty much sponsored every Australian musician. We've sponsored lots of Australian uh, tours and music events. We've had all the stars sing our jingles. You know, things go better with Coke, Brian Cad, and, you know, um, just there's a whole litany of, uh, of uh, Australian artists and talent that have um, been involved in the marketing of Coke. We want to do something really special. We want to give back to the industry. We want to stage a massive national event where the industry gets behind Coke and Coke gets behind the industry and we raise money for the future development of Australian artists. And um, so we said, okay, that's a pretty bold uh, move. Um, Why don't we give it a go? And we said, what's the budget? And they said, what do you need it to be? (laughs) How good's that? That's a great budget. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we, uh, we started brainstorming and being as crazy as we were, we thought let's start with the Prime Minister. So we went to Bob Hawke <laughs> and we said, we'd like you to declare National Australian Music Day on the 25th of November and we want to stage a national concert, Live Aid style, um, with the creme de la creme, creme of Australian talent on the inaugural National Australian Music Day. Um, we have it fully underwritten by Coke. Will you do it, Mr Prime Minister? He jumped on it, um, wrote letters, recorded videos, got behind us, being the Aussie bloke that he was. We then went out to the music industry and said, we're declaring November 25th National Australian Music Day. We're putting on this massive concert. All the production's underwritten. Yes, we're going to sell tickets to it. The promoter's Coca-Cola. But you're not going to get paid. You're not going to have any costs. You're not going to get paid, but all the money raised after the production is going to be going to further the careers of uh, young Australian artists through Oz Music, which was a a foundation that was already established to do that. Yeah. And uh, the event was called Oz Music 90, and in 1990 we had 37 artists across five stages across Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, live on the Seven Network for six hours, hosted by Molly Meldrum, sponsored by Coke. Um, Pretty much everyone was on it. Um, Just most extraordinary event. We actually flew out the director of live, um, the Philadelphia Live Aid concert, um, but also the two Mandela concerts from the UK. Yeah, wow. um, To actually be, be the director of the event because we wanted to make sure we had some hot talent to 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 sort of lift the TV network to make this thing work because it was a, a huge undertaking at, at the time. And lo and behold, it went off like a cracker. That's cool. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's one of those classic examples where, you know, build it and they will come. <laughs> yeah, it's a great example of that. And on that, I mean, that's a, that's a massive achievement. And, I mean, I'm thinking it's probably the same, but, I mean, there's still Oz Music Month today. Like, you know, now it's something that's, that's sort of... That's the legacy. Yeah. That's the legacy. It still goes on. That's great. Are there any other sort of 
big achievements that you can you can think of over your time running MCM? We went um, uh, from that because we were building out an outfit in London to to do um, syndic- you know barter syndication in Europe, um, and and we'd moved into the television industry in Australia. Um, we was just in the the radio industry in um, in in the UK and Europe, but um, Coke got wind of what we did down here, and uh, they wanted to come up with something. Europe was the fastest growing Coca Cola region in the world, and they wanted to come up with something that united Europe. And um, basically, you know, you've got to be careful sometimes in life what you ask for. And uh, what Coke was alluding to is if we, um, if we combined elements of Coca-Cola budgets in 25 countries, we could come up with one hell of a budget to put on one hell of a show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we said, okay, this is interesting. Now, you know, in a market that had already done the wall, with Roger Waters and already done, you know, two Mandela shows, Live Aid, lots and lots of different events. We kind of steered away from the one-off event into uh, owning a summer of music across 25 countries in Europe. So we set out to sign up the biggest artists in the world to, you know, the name of the project was called Cocos the Music. And so we signed up Bobby Brown, Salt and Pepper, um, Bon Jovi, um, uh, Prince. Um, the the list goes on. It was quite an amazing lineup. And um, at the time, the cherry on the top, the one they really, really, really wanted, was Prince. Yeah. And it was a fascinating experience because they were launching. <laughs> They were launching Coca's The Music at Euro Disney, um, at a Coca-Cola event at Euro Disney because the launch of Euro Disney in Paris was the first sort of pan-European marketing exercise where all 25 countries have worked together um, and around promotions to promote Euro Disney. And so Coca's The Music was launched at a Coke conference, a European conference at Euro Disney. And I was told if you don't arrive back with Prince, don't bother arriving back um, because they, want, they wanted the president to be able to list all these great artists and everyone go, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, and then finally go and to top it all off, we have His Royal Highness Prince. And at the time, Prince was hotter than hot. Yeah. Unbelievably hot. Um, we're talking 1991 here. And yeah. um, around the Cream album time. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm over in Minneapolis working with Prince's management and lawyers trying to trying to sign up Prince. <laughs> I'm literally living in, in America, um, you know, weeks at a time trying to get this done. And we're dealing with a really, um, you know, a big list of minders from lawyers to managers and the whole bit. Um, did many meetings at uh, Paisley Park in Minneapolis. Um, fascinating journey. But the real funny part of this story is 
Um, I had the divisional marketing manage, manager of Europe um, who reports directly to the president fly into Los Angeles to meet with me on his way back to Euro Disney for this launch. And I got read the riot, riot act. You know, I don't care. I, you know, and I'm trying to say, you know, you can't tell Prince when to sign, when, when Prince should do something. You know, we're in the hands of his people. I don't care. You bring Prince to Euro Disney or you will never work for the Coca-Cola company again. So anyhow, we managed to do it. Um, I, I was working. Coke had given me a lawyer to work with and it was a litigation lawyer. Um, which is the last person you need when you're working with artistic uh, yeah. lawyers representing artists. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was, he was a real stiff Atlanta Georgian guy. Um, but uh, we, uh, we got through finally. Um, and, and, of course, nothing could be announced without a legal agreement being signed. And there was a long process to get that done. But anyhow, I got it done on the timeline and then I was racing back to get the tail end of this conference. And, um, you know, I obviously rang ahead and said, look, guys, we have Prince signed. And it shared, you know, because I had a Coke lawyer with me, he could confirm on the phone. They were all cheering at the other end so they could fire up all the videos to light up Euro Disney at the Coke conference and celebrate Prince. So I get on a plane, Virgin Atlantic, and fly straight back to London and land in London and I'm in a taxi to go home change and repack a suitcase to rush off to Euro Disney to try and catch the tail end of this conference and in the car from the airport to home because I was living in London at the time Capital Radio comes on and goes um, interesting news overnight out of the uh, out of the US Prince is no longer going to be known as Prince <laughs> Prince is now simply going to be known as the symbol. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in, you know, <laughs> having had a few drinks on the plane, slightly jet lagged, slightly hungover, slightly exhausted, going, my God, I've just signed Mr. Squiggle for Coke. <laughs> where do we go with this one now? Where do we go with this? Um, you know, because they're not allowed to call it. He, he no longer wants to be called Prince. So how am I going to explain this to Coke? It was just, it was a classic, so it, an absolute classic. And then he became the artist formerly known as Prince, didn't he? Correct, correct. But yeah. he had the symbol. Remember the symbol? No, I, I missed that one. I missed that no, part there of was it. A, there, was, there was a symbol. It was a bit like a music class, but not quite. Wow. But that, that was his, it was a kind of combination between a music class and a, a, and a male um, symbol, you know, with the the arrow. Hard for the um, uh, hard for the president to announce on a on a big event <laughs> is to introduce yeah, but that. He, here's here's the genius of the late prince, the absolute genius of it, and why even though his people put us to hell and back, he signed with the biggest, most iconic logo in the world, the Coca Cola logo and the dynamic ribbon is because he wanted to be recognised without letters. I mean, you recognise the Coke dy dynamic ribbon wherever you go. Mm. Um, he wanted his device to be recognised. He wanted to be above them all different. And by actually taking Coke on board, so I played into that. I realised that some of the stuff he'd asked for in the contract, I was just perplexed about. 
So I went to a crowd called Fisher Park who do big concert design, all right? They, they, they work for U2, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd. They have done some of the most extraordinary concert designs, you know, like how do we take the next tour out and blow the world away? And this is in the 90s it was all about, you know, how do you reinvent yourself? And, you know, this is with the Zeropa tours and, um, you know, Pink Floyd floating pigs all around stadiums and stuff like that. And uh, I said to these guys, would you take on this challenge? I want to take a proposal back to Paisley Park to embrace Prince and Coke together. And so the idea that I came up with was, you couldn't go on the stage because you know, that's a. It's just so obvious, and b. The artist really doesn't want the brand on stage. Mm. But I sat there and I said, "This is a summer outdoor tour, so almost every venue is going to be outdoors with the sound desk and light tower in the middle of the stadium. And when it's indoors, you still got the sound desk in the stadium, and you can have lights above it." And I and I remember the Close Encounters movie. You know, the da, 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 yeah. I can't do the sound right, but you know, how they talked in lights mm. and sounds to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, what if we what if we created some device that sat above the sound desk in stadiums and hung from the roof in indoor venues that could talk to the stage in lights and sound and also be part of the show, light up the whole stadium. So they came up with this amazing globe that opened up like a, you know, something out of Alien, you know, um, you know, that would then have this revolving um, uh, light show that came out of it. On one side of it was Prince's symbol, on the other side was the Coca-Cola logo. Yeah, nice. And both would project their images through very lights onto the stadium audience. So you got these revolving Coke logos and print symbols moving around the stadium. And we took it to Prince and said, what if? And it was the first time that his mind has actually invited him into the room and said, you have to see this. And he he came in, they explained it to him, he looked at it, he nodded to one person and walked out. (laughs) And then... They looked at us and said, this is back at Paisley Park. They looked at us and said, let's do it. (laughs) And we did it. And it was the most extraordinary, it it really was groundbreaking as far as artist and brand integration and sponsorship. Um, And and I think it all stems back to him wanting to be Mr. Symbol or the artist formerly known as Prince. He, He wanted to be an icon, not a name. Yeah, that's cool. Sorry, it's a long story, but it's no, worth telling that one. That's awesome, Matt. I want to I want to talk more, uh, go into the McGinn partnership and and talk a bit more about sales now because um, sort of what you what you focus on now. Um, but before I do, I want to know what the transition was like going from the CEO of MCN, you know, an ASX ASX listed company, to to working in more of a niche consulting and training business? I think you can tell by the way I've told these stories, our heyday was the 80s, 90s and the noughties. But once we got into the, the sort of 
2010 onwards, digital was really starting to play a big role. Now, we were big in digital. Um, I mean, the Take 40 Australia website in Australia was the number one music site for four or five years. And we were streaming music, but it was a, a painful exercise because it was um, all very new to the record companies and they were, they were really extortionist about They were so scared about their own future. They weren't very cooperative. It was a very tough time. And we started to realise, we started to see these, the rise of the platforms, um, you know, Apple with their, their music um, platform, which kind of killed the CD and changed music, um, YouTube, streaming music videos, um, and, uh, and then, you know, the social media platforms and how that started to move the advertising dollars. And we... We thought we could compete, which was a bit naive, and we probably spent too much money trying to compete, mm. particularly in our home market here in Australia. So we decided to uh, we delisted the, the the public company in two thousand eleven or twelve, um, and um, actually, no, I tell a lie. It was two thousand thirteen. We delisted the. Um, the public company. It was still a public company, but it just wasn't listed on the ASX. And in 2016, we sold the business to Southern Cross Asteria, yep. who ironically was the first radio state, the network they own, um, the network that includes Fox FM, which is the first station to launch Take 40. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, a full circle. Yeah. Um, and it, it was time to exit media because I think you can tell now when you look at media, there is a lot of pressure on media um, and the dollars are, are, are pouring into digital um, with addressable, you know, individual marketing data-driven, mm. even AI-driven, yeah. um, which is very hard to, to do, you know, on TV screens, outdoor signs or radio ads, uh, albeit uh, the one that's probably been most heard is, is newspaper ads and magazines. Yeah. So traditional media was always going to wane, um, not fail, but just wane. We probably left it a little too long to get out of it. Um, you know, when you look back at things, maybe we should have got out a little earlier, but we were trying to reinvent ourselves as a digital company. But it's hard to compete with Amazon's, Apple's, um, Facebook's, uh, Google's. It's incredibly hard. Yeah. So... Uh, after we sold the company, I, for the first time in my life, took a sabbatical and uh, I started the business at 22 and, yes, I've had holidays, but like anyone running a business, I was always mixing work with holidays. Yeah. And um, I got to the stage um, where, you know, I really just wanted to turn off and rethink lots and lots of things. I had options to go back into media. I had options to sit on boards. I had options to lead someone else's outfit, um, I had options to do a startup. Um, I, and I thought, well, three and a half decades in media and entertainment, you know, maybe I should reinvent myself a bit. Um, I'd seen a biography on on uh, Foxtel on Carl Lagerfeld and uh, the late Carl Lagerfeld, and he said, you know, he, he had a motto in life, you should always reinvent yourself and try and reinvent yourself at least seven times in a lifetime. That was just his mantra. <laughs> wow. And I thought, well, 
you know, I probably have reinvented myself through the business a few times with what we've done, radio, into television, into events, um, into digital, uh, and then we got into marketing services, then we got into uh, media technology. Some of that was wise, some of that wasn't wise, but I thought, no, I really need to reinvent myself now. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm actually going to turn my back on media and entertainment as much as I still love entertainment. I, uh, I thought, what do I want to do? And um, I said, I want to help other businesses grow. Uh, I've got an amazing growth story. Um, I've had lots of successes. I've also had lots of failures and I've learned from both. And uh, I want to help um, businesses grow, uh, particularly focusing on SMEs. And uh, there's two ways of doing that. One is um, coaching and uh, mentoring CEOs, which I do through the Executive Connection. I was a member of the Executive Connection um, when I came back from Britain in 1997 till about 2005, and that was a formidable time in our company's um, journey and we had tremendous growth through that time and tremendous um, profitability and performance and that I would attribute a lot of that to what I got out of tech and my tech group. So I became a tech chair and that was good because it kind of, it, 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 it deconstructed me as a CEO and a founder and got me to look through other people's eyes at their businesses. Um, and, uh, and, and not so much lead but question. Um, and so uh, the other thing I did as well as becoming a tech chair and a tech speaker um, is I focused on the one thing when I, I was actually walking down 90 Mile Beach in Victoria um, in one of my think sessions uh, where no one else is on the sand for miles and miles and only your footprints. And um, I was thinking, you know, what, you know, coming back to that one thing that you're exceptional at, and I'm going, what was the one thing, you know, Coke was exceptional at was distribution. To use that analogy, I said, what was the one thing MCM was exceptional at on its journey? Uh, And I realised the one thing we're exceptional at is sales and business development. Mm. And I started to really deep dive into that and research it globally. And the, 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 the question I followed in my mind was why doesn't sales training work? Everyone spends a fortune on it. If it worked, sales would be booming. You wouldn't have to keep getting it back. And I realized that, you know, there's a couple of big problems with that, that sales is an incidental career. People tend to fall into it. It's not a, it's not a profession that's treated as a role. Mm. And, then as I dug deeper on that, I realised that's because there's no tertiary path for sales and business development. There is for marketing, there is for commerce and business studies and MBAs, there is for a whole string of other professions, Um, but there's not for sales and business development. Yet sales and business development is the engine room of any business in B2B commerce. Yeah. you know, and, and as I dug deeper, it became clearer and clearer to me that this is an area that doesn't need another, you know, 
headache pill, um, sales training, uh, which, which treats the symptoms, not the root cause, but it actually needs to be completely rebuilt and transformed. Mm. And I, I've started doing that and I've started doing that for companies working. Uh, I, I launched the McGinn partnership um, and I'm working with some learner colleagues and we provide um, programs that we run in organisations on sales and business development, but um, they're long programs. We're usually involved with the company for up to a year yeah. um, because it's not about a, a vitamin B shot. It's about <laughs> it's about changing the way the company works firstly and its protocols and how it approaches sales and business development. And then it's about how we educate the people around how to leverage those protocols. Um, and my, my great ambition and hope is that we can do this as a pre-grad education course uh, for tertiary, for, for school leavers, um, to actually go and do a tertiary course in sales and business development and then come out 18 months, two years later and go, right, what industry do I want to work in and have that industry sitting there ready, willing and able to hire them because they understand the science, the art and the, uh, the psychology of their profession. That's cool. I love that. I often think like if you want to be, if someone, if someone was young and asking me for advice on how to, how to be successful and make a lot of money, I'd say get into sales, be, be, you know, be successful in, uh, in selling a, you know, a premium product or something like that. Yeah, I really admire that vision and providing, you know, an education or a, a curriculum around school leavers or undergrads to develop their sales skills. I think it's essential. I yeah. think it's an essential skill for anyone to have. It's not just a salesperson to have. It should be any business owner. Agreed. Agreed. Because, I mean, the purpose of any business is to find a customer. Yeah. That's why a business exists. So the art of finding that customer, um, particularly in B2B, B2C is a little different with the, you know, the way that digital works now and, and, and the different channels that, people can go through, but um, uh, B2B, it's, it's hand-to-hand combat. It's human being to human being. Mm. Um, and there's a lot going on there and there's a lot of bad habits that have been taught over the years. Um, you know, generally speaking, what you've got is salespeople practising on their prospects and customers, which is not ideal. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Um, that's right. You, you, yeah, you sort of uh, you trial out new things. I mean, I'd, I'd be guilty of it, trialing out new approaches or new things with, you know, in a live environment. And then the feedback you get is, is whether or not you win or lose that prospect. Yeah. Imagine if, if pilots did that. <laughs> Imagine if surgeons did that. Imagine if, if lawyers did that. Imagine yeah. if engineers did that when they're building structures. Yeah, yeah. You know, just you, you, no, so you go in for surgery, and he's like, "Look, man, I've never done this before, but I'm going to try this out, and hopefully, it, it, yeah. it comes off." Yeah, we'll we'll see what what happens once we get in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, there's so many professions they would never let it happen. Yeah. Um, you know, lawyers rehearse trials; they don't. Uh, you know, the outcomes can be catastrophic if they don't. So on that, I mean, it, so, it sounds like there's a, there's a takeaway for the listeners there. 
is is practice something you really encourage you know if i was yeah. to if i was to prepare a presentation to go into a new you know a new client meeting um you know if we were, if we we're doing the course together would that be something that you would always recommend yeah and you wouldn't be preparing a presentation you'd be preparing a a protocol of questions that you were going to ask mm. to find out whether that customer or prospect is a fit for you and you're a fit for them. Yeah. And if you're not, you'll give them every chance to qualify themselves out. Yeah. Like because that. the lost productivity in sales is where the salesperson is focused on the sale, not the prospect and the process. Um, you know, because you can't assume if you go and see 200 people over the next year that all 200 of those people need or want your service or product. Mm. But there would be, I don't know, whatever, whatever the numbers are, you know, you need 25 of them who do. Yeah. So how can you get to those 25 quicker without collateral damage on, you know, the other 175 and because those 175, A, you want to spend less time with, but B, you also want to keep your slate clean because they may need you later. Mm. Yeah, it's a great piece of advice. And not every client's in the buying cycle when you visit them. You know, people buy things to solve problems, to fix pain in their organisation, but all organisations live with pain. It's not a perfect world. Yeah. So it's got to be pain that compels them to act and they're prepared to do something about because the implications for them if they don't are not good and that they've got the money to put towards it and the authority to make the call. And that's kind of how we line it up. So what, what are some great questions you like to ask or you like to recommend in a new business setting? Well, there's... Six, and um, it's actually a Roger Kipling poem. I have six honest men and they taught me all I knew. Their names are how, what, when, where, and who. How, what, when, where, who, I'm missing one. There's six of them because I've been talking for an hour. (laughs) I fried my brain. There's another one. Uh, Why? Yeah. How, what, when, where, who, why. There is six. Any question that starts with that, one of those words is an open question. Yeah. And an open question, um, you know, why did you start your business, Dan, as, as opposed to what year did you start your business or how long have you been in business, you yeah. know? Why did you start your business? Um, who else is in the business? If I ask you what's the head count, you're going to say 10, 5, 50, whatever. Yeah. But if I say who else is in the business, mm. you're actually going to tell, give me much more context about it. Yeah. And the shorter the question built around those words, um, the more you're going to learn about the needs, wants, um, and challenges of your prospect. And we should not walk in the door, no matter what we sell, a service, a product, whatever, and assume that they need what we have. Mm. And we almost apologise to them for taking 
time, but can we just check and see whether there is relevance? And if there is, we'll both decide what we do next and why. Yeah. But if there's not, we're happy to get out of your hair because we both need our time. Mm. The trouble is a salesperson will sit there and talk till they're blue in the face trying to persuade someone or talking features and benefits. And the default setting of the buyer, more often than not, is to make the salesperson dance for them. You know, I reckon that Tones and I song is perfect. I use it now in workshops I run. I put it on. Dance for me, baby. Dance for me, baby. I said, guys, how many, da- how many dance for me, baby questions did you get in the meeting? Because, you know, people are mildly interested in you but fascinated in themselves. So we need to talk a lot less. Here's Tony who's just spoken for an hour nonstop. But <laughs> That's right. we need to speak a lot, lot less about ourselves. And we need to understand a lot more. What's the what's the classic saying? First seek to be understood. Sorry, first seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. So I mean, we have a lot of marketers and designers who listen to this podcast. People probably who don't have a great deal of sales experience. And as I said before, you know, I think it's something that everyone should have experience or a confident a level of confidence in, have a level of training in. But what advice would you give someone who's looking to grow confidence in their ability in sales? I think they need to read good books about sales. Um, You don't want to read too many because some of them will contradict themselves. Um, (laughs) I I think they, um, they need to focus on where you can get a, a selling system, a protocol to follow. Because if you think about it, most salespeople out there are using a protocol they've invented through trial and error, and it's their own personal protocol. The company will give them price, policy, sales, marketing material, features and benefits, do's and don'ts. That's not a protocol. A protocol is how do you engage the prospect? What is our vernacular? What happens first? And this is you know, one of the things in, in my sabbatical that I learned as the biggest missing ingredient, and this is why there is not university courses in sales and business development the world over, is because you would need three faculties. The first faculty is commerce, which is obvious. Um, that's what makes the world go around. And, you know, with a, if you could put a major in marketing in there, that would be great because marketing is a good thing to understand in sales and business development, but sales and marketing are different swim lanes. They're in the same pool, but they are different swim lanes. And the easiest way to think about that in a B2B sense is marketing is the Air Force, sales is the infantry. The Air Force will go in and let everyone know they're there. You can hear them (laughs) coming from miles away and they can make a lot of noise, but the infantry go in and sort out the deal hand-to-hand. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, they are, they're related. They're both aligned to achieve similar objectives and together they can, if they're well synchronised, they can really be effective. But, you know, there's many organisations where marketing is doing one thing and sales is doing another and they're not aligned. Um, But so... Commerce with a major in marketing would be great. Um, Obviously, psychology, but psychology doesn't live in commerce. It lives in medicine. So you need the dean of 
commerce to sit down with the dean of medicine and have a coffee and talk about how they can build a curriculum. Well, the next one is an even bigger stretch because you'd also the third dean you'd need sitting at that coffee table is the dean of arts. What I would argue the single biggest missing ingredient in the art of selling um, and the one that most sales and business development people don't have. And if you, if you study method acting, you'll realise that the way method acting is built is a whole lot of individual objectives building to a super objective. The super objective is the, is the movie, the story, the film, the play, whatever. But to make that movie, that story work with its audience, there's a whole series of individual scenes which are individual objectives that clip together and happen in sequence that build it. Yeah. So that's exactly the same in sales. The super objective is the sale. But to get the sale, you've got to go through a whole series of objectives in order to build to the super objective. Sadly, too many salespeople walk into a meeting focused on the super objective, not the objective of what they're meant to be doing at that point in time. Mm. And once you work out a protocol of how those objectives line up for your business and your industry, customised to your business and your industry, you then flow left to right and you never skip a cell and you do every objective in sequence and you slow the whole sales process down. And if at any point it's not working, you let the prospect qualify themselves out because they're not going to buy anyhow. Yeah. yeah. And it takes yeah. pressure off the project, uh, the prospect. It eliminates collateral damage from the typical salesperson, the, you know, the pushy, you know, me, me, me approach. And it gives back productivity and time to the salesperson, but most importantly, it makes the pipeline more transparent and clear. And if you go and ask any CEO or sales director what the most frustrating thing is in the sales business, they will tell you is I don't know what's going to close my pipeline and what's not mm. because the salespeople will jam anything into it and hope. <laughs> this isn't about hope. This is about we're either a fit or we're not, and you give them at every point through the, that series of objectives, you're constantly giving them the opportunity to go, no, you know what, we're not going to proceed with this or we don't have the budget for this or I don't have the authority for this, we need to bring other stakeholders in, whatever. Yeah. But that's what you're searching for all the time. And that's so, so I would encourage young people in business and, and, and obviously marketing services, a lot of it is more about services and product, then you need to know what they've been doing up until now. You know, I use this story I tell, which I won't tell now because it's, it's relevant what, for, the, for this podcast, but you test drive their car. Who's been providing the marketing services to date? They might have had a contractor in. They might have been doing it themselves and doing it badly. You know, they might have tried to build their own website uh, on WordPress. You know, they might have been buying, playing around and buying words on Google, yeah. AdWords, and, you know, screwing it up because they don't have the trail connected properly, you know. 
They might have been, uh, you know, trying to develop brands themselves using their cousin who's a graphic artist but <laughs> not a brand architect. You know, who knows? But you need to know what they've been doing. So, you know, first seek to understand before you seek to be understood. So it's not about here's what we do, here's how great we are. It's about what have you been doing today and how's that working for you? And the fact that we're meeting must mean there's some needs here and that, that needs... You know, people buy because they're in, they're compelled to buy because the pain they're in or the pain they could be in is fearful to them and they want to avoid it. So do you spend time, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into, you know, an example sales meeting, but um, would you spend, would you recommend spending time unpacking that fear or sort of uh, you know, highlighting yeah. the fear of like, what, you know, what, what would we, be the, we, what would be the result if you did nothing? What would be the, you know, effect? Or correct, the correct. One, yeah. of our, one of our key questions is, is the current situation sustainable? Yeah, that's great. Exactly that. You know, if they're talking about pain in their business, um, you know, for instance, it's, you know, I work with a, all sorts of different industries and customers. Um, let's take a... Um, I've recently been working for a uh, equipment sales distributor. Um, I mean, their machines are anything from sort of 45 grand to 2 million, all yeah. right? Big, big machines. And a lot of the people they deal with are owner-operators. So if an owner-operator is running, a, you know, two or three machines or even one machine, that machine is their livelihood. Mm. If it's down, if it's broken and, you know, repairs and maintenance, it's not making money their crew's not working, they're not pleasing their customer, they're not winning the next tender, and they're in a lot of pain. They're in a lot of pain. So you need to find out what if, if they've invited you in, you know, based on you reaching out to them or vice versa, um, if, 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 if they've allowed you in to come and talk, you know, yeah, sure, they want to know what new machines cost and, you know, what sort of deals you can do and all the rest of it. But before you even go near that, before you even talk about that and, and, and you know, you want to try and push back on all of that is I don't know whether we've got the right machine for you yet. First I need to know what do you do, how do you do it. You know, even though you might have seen their website and researched them, don't assume, ask questions. What's working, what's not working? And then you can simple questions like what is your monthly R&M at the moment? Repairs and maintenance. Mm. They turn around and tell you fifteen grand. Whoa! Why so high? Well, yeah, one machine that's five years old. The other one we're probably doing two jobs that are too big for it, and it's too small. So we keep breaking this and breaking that. Um, all you can literally hear the pain in the room. Yeah. And, and if you can fix that pain, if you can fix that pain, um, you know, you can go to the next stage. But the next stage is not selling. The next stage is exactly what you said, Dan. How long can this keep going? Mm. And you've got to almost help them. It's a psychology couch, really. You need them to <laughs> lean back and talk through their problems and suddenly realise, oh, my God, I'm, you know, so that's 15 grand a month. Well, have you added in the downtime of the crew there? No, I haven't. What about the lost business? No, I haven't. Can we just do some back of envelope stuff here? <laughs> Before you know it, you're losing, you know, 30 grand a month potentially, all right? That's $360,000 a year. Yeah. 
the machine you're trying to sell them is 750000 to lease over five years is going to cost them less than twenty grand a month. Yeah. Yeah, like I like how you put that, um, and especially the reference to the the psychologist's couch. Um, I think, and I'm definitely guilty of it, going in going in too hot on a on a new sales meeting, and and thinking that you know I've got all the solutions, all the answers in there, and not actually taking a step back and and just asking and finding out, and actually letting the customer qualify themselves to be, you know, I, you know. Uh, you know, are we the right fit as an agency or as a, as a studio? You can't be talking about how great you are or what you know about the industry, mate, if everything you start say starts with who, what, why, where, yeah. when. You know, they're, they're, they're the keys that will unlock the door. Yeah, if, you, if, if you focus on nothing else but only those. I, I use this piece of advice, you should be curious enough as if you wanted to buy their business. Yeah, I love that. So as you're sitting there talking to them, the questions you're asking, I want you to go in there not as a salesperson, not as someone who, God, we need to win this deal because we need, you know, we need the revenue or we, we, need, we need to get crack this industry so we can expand in it, whatever the, the strategy that is driving you. Park all of that and go in going, I don't need this business I'm super curious about it and I'm going to pretend I want to buy his business. No, not literally. You're not going to make him an offer. But the <laughs> questions you ask, the questions you ask are the sort of questions you would ask as if you were to buy the business. So that guy is an owner-operator of excavators. What's your monthly R&M is a really good question to ask because mm. if he's burning cash with machines that have got massive downtime and lots of repairs and maintenance, you know, there's there's an upside there if he fixes that in his business. But if you were looking at it as someone to buy the business, you go, I wouldn't buy it unless I could fix that. Yeah. And you've got to help him realise that, not by telling him, but by just going through, you know, it's taking the layers off the onion. Yeah. Basically. So and we've all got to stop, we've all got to stop that little guy jumping up inside our head going, Well, now it's my turn. I get to sell. <laughs> God, we love that little stage, and we're just we're just got to keep him locked, him or her locked away. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, well, Tony, mate, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, you've covered yeah some great stories and some um, some awesome takeaways for for sales. Some stuff that I'm going to implement into um, into my business straight away. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a few personal questions and then a few questions in closing. Uh, so firstly, what do you do outside of work uh, as a bit of an escape? Well, I'm in lockdown in Melbourne at the moment, so um, that's, uh, that makes it a bit hard. Um, I love the ocean. I love ocean sailing. Um, I've done ocean sailing uh, in racing. I've done it in leisure. I've done it in some wonderful places like Tonga and Phuket and um, I, I adore being on yachts on the blue water, yeah, nice. um, very much so. And, uh, and so do my family. So that, that's probably where I, I just am in a very special space. Um, I, uh, I also adore the mountains. So I'm, I'm a water, I'm a, I'm a salt water and a mountains person. So I used to have a property up in the high country in Victoria and, um, I love skiing. Um, yeah, nice. I, 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 again, haven't been able to do that this year. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, I love the mountains. So, uh, and I'm, I'm very passionate about wine. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you put me anywhere near a decent winery in a restaurant, um, there's a day. I can thoroughly <laughs> enjoy that. Thoroughly enjoy that. And, and it goes without saying family and, um, um, you know, that sort of stuff is, is, is very important. I love entertaining. Yeah, that's cool. I think I've always wanted to, you know, I, my, my stupidest dream, and I'm glad I don't have one now, is I'd love to own a pub. Um, <laughs> I, I lo- I'd love to be a host and just, you know, serve people good food, good grog and good times. Um, but thank God I'm not in that business right now, certainly in Victoria. No, the timing wouldn't have been great. But, um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and you mentioned before, uh, sales books that, um, you know, young people could read to, to improve their confidence or experience there. Are there any sales books in particular that you would recommend? There's one I'm going to recommend that is not written as a sales book, but I think it is the key to unlock everything. And it's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, The biggest problem for any sales or business development person, and I'd argue for any person doing anything, is that we are a victim of our own habits. Um, We sabotage ourselves more often than not. We do what we want to do, what we need to do, not what we must do. And what we must do is what is most important to change our lives to get us where we want to be. Um, which is more free time, more sailing on the ocean, more skiing on slopes, more wineries, whatever whatever presses your buttons, more time with your family, more balance, whatever. Um, and and we, we let life slip by um, with our habits eating away at us. And, 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 and as simple habits of, you know, trying to lose weight, trying to give up smoking, trying to have three alcohol-free days a week, trying to um, exercise more um, and, 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 and get a, more, a better work-life balance, trying to spend more time with friends or family. Um, we, we all wish and hope and try and promise and write lists of goals, which are just like a shopping list. You don't always pick everything up. Um, Atomic Habits is a book that will give you a really simple approach to unlocking that. And one of the things that he says in that book is that, you know, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We sink to the level of our processes to achieve them. Mm. And that's the key in sales. That's the key in sales. And, and everything we teach in the performance protocol, which the McGinn part is the McGinn partnership um, IP in this area is around, you know, protocol process. The words are basically the same. We use protocol because it's a more serious word. Yeah. You know, pilots use protocols when they fly planes. Surgeons use protocols. Triage units use protocols. Um, OH&S have protocols. Mm. So sales should have protocols. Um, And, it's, it's those processes um, and, and the rigour of those um, and, and holding each other accountable to those that actually does change the game. You can have all the goals in the world and you might get lucky and get some of them, maybe all of them, but 
if you really, you know, if you really want to turbocharge the opportunity, um, get the processes right, and Atomic Habits will give you the keys on how to do it. That's great. That's a great Particularly how to manage the brain. That's awesome. We'll post a link to it in the show notes. And finally, mate, who's someone remarkable in branding, marketing, or design that you know that we should speak to? Scott Wyburn. Scott Wyburn from Wyburn TBWA. He's no longer part of the agency. Yep. Um, agency, yep. He, uh, he used to be the creative director at Campaign Palace in Melbourne. Um, Scott Wyburn and I have spent quite a bit of time with creatively and he is he's a genius, an absolute genius. And um, I, I believe last I heard he was up in Newcastle. Um, I'm not sure if he is now. I, I could certainly try and track him down. Yeah, that'd um, be great. But Scott Wyburn is... Um, is an extraordinary human being. He he helped us invent the million dollar lunch, um, and gave. You know, he, he took it's my my motto of "It's not impossible; it's just no one's done it before." He took it to another level, and and basically said, "Don't let it scare you. Build it, and they will come." That's cool. Um, and if you don't build it, they won't come. <laughs> <laughs> Back on that million dollar lunch, are you able to explain on that? Uh, extrapolate on that. Well, it, my first son had leukemia. He's twenty three years old now and totally fine, and a fine young man. Um, but he had leukemia, and leukemia in children is one of the more easier cancers to cure. Although there are there is a mortality rate, um, it has improved enormously since he was diagnosed in two thousand. And, um, but it's the longest treatment, it's the most amount of drugs. So you spend a lot of time in the system. And so over five years of treatment, I got involved with a, a parent's support group, which then I stepped up into become uh, a not-for-profit charity um, with direct gift recipients, tax status. And then we said, you know, we wanted to really, you know, be the, being a customer in the system, we wanted to really advocate for the kids and the families to get better services because it was very, very imperfect um, and very underfunded and understaffed in Victoria. So we um, we started turning up the heat there and we found that if we didn't have money, we wouldn't be listened to. You know, we were just a, a, a whinging um, customer. Um, mm. we, we, we needed to be able to challenge the system. So I sat down with um, a good friend of mine, Sue Gadinsky and Barry Bissell, who used to host Take 40 Australia, and had a lunch with them and said, you know, we'd all been to the Nordoff Robin lunch in London, which is a music industry lunch that raises money for autistic children. Um, and, you know, you go to this lunch and it's just the biggest piss-up on the planet and all the big names and record, you know, a real heyday of the... The, uh, the late 80s and, and, and the 90s, it was a huge lunch. Um, and it used to raise amazing money with, you know, huge sums of money being thrown around by very wealthy musicians and publishers and record companies and promoters. And so we said, let's do that in Melbourne. We don't have as big a music community, so why don't we have 
the entertainment and sports industry kind of meets the top end of Collins Street, you know, um, the high net worth individuals, and that's create a, a sort of an elite lunch that's fuck off expensive, um, which it was. Um, I mean, we launched it at $1,000 a ticket. I think it's nearly 2000 a ticket now. Wow. Um, everything there was donated 100%. So everything you ate, everything you drank, everything you could win um, in raffles, in, 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 um, in auctions, um, was all donated, 100% donated. And it was always a fairly small lunch. You know, it was about, started off with about 450. I think at its peak, it's got to around about 550, 600. We don't ever want it to get bigger than that because it starts to, um, it starts to become a bit supermarkety. It's got to stay, it's got to stay super special, this brand. Yep. And, uh, it, it has raised its first year, um, in 2004, raised a million dollars, just over a million and one thousand dollars. Wow! Um, I think I put in the one thousand. Um, and uh, since then, I've, over the sixteen years or whatever, um, it's raised over twenty-five million dollars. Wow! So the last couple of years, it's done about two and a half million dollars um, in three hours, three and a half hours, and. This year we couldn't have it, of course, because of lockdown. So they just flipped the day into a giving day and and worked the the the, um, the community on it, the the, the database on it, who are incredible the sponsors who are incredibly generous. Mm. And um, without a lunch, without a, a glass of wine being poured, it raised seven hundred thousand dollars. Wow, that's awesome. That's so incredible. it's it's an extraordinary brand. It's um, but but what. The, the Koala Foundation Kids Oncology and Leukemia Action um, group that I got involved with, we ran, we launched, created and launched the Million Dollar Lunch. I ran it for 10 years and uh, then I was travelling too much. So um, uh, we ended up merging the Koala Foundation in with the Children's Cancer Foundation and um, up until only this year, I've been, uh, in fact, only two months ago, I've been deputy chair of that foundation. So I've been involved for about 20 years and I've only just stepped back now to let some younger, more energetic people take the reins. Um, and uh, the lunch, I'm sure, will be back bigger than ever next year. Yeah, wow. Thanks for sharing that. No worries. So, Tony, you've mentioned some great quotes, and I've written down a few uh, over the course of the interview. But, um, but do you have a favourite quote or best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Hmm, that's the one thing I didn't give as much thought to as I should have. Um, <laughs> I don't have regrets. I think is is the best piece of advice I've ever had. Don't have regrets, um, and that's you know that that means you should consider lots of options when you're making important decisions. Mm. But it also means we can't always make the right decision if we don't make the right decision sometimes, or things don't pan out as we expected. Um, don't have regrets; just learn from it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people beat themselves up with regrets, and they let it eat away. And 
I really encourage people not to have regrets, uh, both in, a, in how you move forward in making the decisions that are going to affect you and others in your life um, and also if things don't pan out or things do, you know, deliver a different result, um, don't wear it, don't own it um, mm. in, in the sense that, you know, it eats you. Just learn from it. Um, yeah. that, that's probably the best advice I've been given. Um, yeah, and I've applied it, um, and it keeps me going. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's probably the best advice, but I, I think, um, the thing that, uh, that drives me the most in life is nothing is impossible. Just no one hasn't done it before. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. I, I've I, got that written I, down. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to share it. You know, it, it, it people will try and talk you out of anything and everything. It's not possible. But, you know, it's, I think we're proving in this current COVID period just how things are possible. Um, Yes, it's being forced upon us, but human beings are incredibly flexible and Mm. incredibly inventive. Um, and, And if we collaborate rather than compete, which we've got to do more of, um, we can achieve anything. Yeah. yeah. We're seeing examples around the world where collaboration is not part of the game and the fibre of their societies is falling apart. Mm. Look at this, you know, it's not the United States of America, it's the divided, the ununited States of America. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, just finally, where can people learn more about you? Even though it's uh, overdue for a, uh, an overhaul, um, might have to use one of your <laughs> one of your cohort to help me. Is probably the website, um, the LinkedIn profile on the website. Um, yeah. So I'm easily found on LinkedIn, and all my contact details are there, and um, and also the website. Um, Great. Which I've been so busy, uh, even during lockdown and reinventing how I run things during lockdown, which has, you know, been a seven-month process here in Victoria um, with a small eye of the storm in the middle where we had three or four weeks where uh, we could start living a little bit better but uh, then straight back into it. So um, one of the things that is on the to-do list is the website, but that's uh, the website is themcginpartnership.com. Cool. We'll post a link. Well, mate, thanks again for taking the time. I've learned a hell of a lot and I've had a great time chatting with you. Thank you very much, Dan, and great initiative, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of DSR Branding Presents. To learn more about the guests or the things discussed, head to our website, dsrb.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoyed it, please let me know and spread the word by sharing it with a friend. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. I hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.